Good morning. You guys doing well? Excellent. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts, Acts chapter 6. We're going to wrap up 6, head into 7, and wrap up 7 this morning. How it changes everything is our current teaching series. And the title of this weekend's message is Priesthood of Believers. Just out of curiosity, how many understand what that term means, priesthood of believers? Show of hands. Okay. All four of us this morning. <laughs> oh, five, six. Okay. You, you know, it's, it's probably not real common uh, concept, but it is a biblical truth. It is profound. It is unbelievably pr- profound. And um, so let me give you a little bit of a summary statement of uh, Acts so you kind of know where we are, where we're headed, and what the book is about. When you encounter the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are, never, <laughs> you are never ever the same. When you encounter Him, you are never the same. And as you walk in vital union with Him through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, you're no longer suited for a normal life. And the perfect example of that is uh, Stephen. We're going to study his life here. And uh, Stephen is a great example of this. And here's what's unbelievable about Stephen's life is that he faced martyrdom with boldness, calmness, joy, and check this out, even forgiveness, forgiving the very ones that were murdering him in the process. How in the world did he do that? How did he do that? That's, I, think, I really believe that he understood this amazing biblical truth, the priesthood of the believer. And if you understand it, it will begin to change your life too. So my question for you this morning is, where do you need boldness, calmness, joy, and maybe even forgiveness in your life? What areas of your life or as it relates to the people in your lives or the, or the things or the circumstances of your life, where do you need any of those characteristics? Those are ours for the receiving today if we understand what God has provided for us. And so that's where we're headed with our study this morning. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? And uh, let's pray, and we'll dive into our text. Father in heaven, we love you. We love you. We love you because you first loved us by sending your Son to live and die for us. And putting our faith in him, you now indwell us with your Holy Spirit and desire to meet with us through the study of your word this morning. And as we study these words directly from your mouth through your servants, may we see more clearly, savor more deeply, and show to our world more contagiously your abundant grace through this amazing biblical truth, the priesthood of all believers. Help us to understand what that means, not just intellectually in our mind, but in our heart. May it transform our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, okay, let me... uh, let me start. Let me start reading here. Uh, Acts chapter six. Let me bring you up to speed here. Acts chapter six, verse eight. You'll remember the story here in Acts chapter six. Uh, we started off. There was a dispute. There was some complaining. The Greek-speaking Jews were complaining against the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and so there was this disruption. And the leaders uh, had the people choose those that would begin to serve these widows and meet their needs. And one of those that was, was chosen was Stephen. And then we now move into his story. But I want you to take special note. This isn't up on a screen, but it's this verse, verse 7. If you have your Bibles open there. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem... So because they brought some better organizations so that people's needs could be better met, and so therefore the elders did not neglect prayer and the study of God's Word so that they could preach, they had uh, deacons who were serving and helping and meeting needs, so you had both word and deed happening. There's an amazing thing that is happening uh, within this community. But note this, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that interesting? So there was many priests, and and I I believe, this is a bit uh, speculation, but I believe that they begin to see a group of people that were doing the things that they were doing, and even more so. See, priests 
were those who met the needs of the poor, but they were also the mediators between God and man and man and God. And yet there was this group of people who were all acting like priests. That they recognized, hey, we don't need mediators anymore. We can go into the holy of holies. We can go before the throne of grace. And not only that, after having encountered God and knowing God, walking with God, I want to help people that don't know Him. And so they all begin to serve one another and serve in the community because of the amazing impact that God had made in their life. And, and I think that that's what they begin to see. That everyone was, in a sense, called to be a priest in in this setting, in this Christianity, in this Christian faith. Verse 8, we pick up our reading here. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, Hey, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him, kind of this mob crowd grabs him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Not quite exactly what he was saying, though he was saying we don't need priests and the temple and the law anymore. We have Jesus. That's what he was saying. He was pointing to Jesus and he was talking about God's amazing grace. But they took it. They twisted it. They were working it against him. And notice what it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. It's interesting. He, he looks just as, as, as one who has encountered the living God. As we see in the book of Exodus, when Moses went up on the hill, Mount Sinai, and encountered God, came off the hill, and there was this glow about him. So let's just read a couple of verses. I'm not going to read all of chapter 7, but look at the two verses in the first part of chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haram. And then he goes into this long uh, preaching and teaching and really giving them a history lesson of the Old Testament. In fact, he does really a good job. If you want to kind of summarize all of the Old Testament, he does a summary for you right here. You can study it and look at it. He does a phenomenal job. And so he goes through the history lesson of the Old Testament. And what he's actually saying is that, hey, this all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Now we pick up the story in verse 51. And at the end of this, and then he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That's not a very nice thing to say, is it? Um, but he's, he's leveling with them. He's, he's, as, as I often say, is that the scriptures tend to, if you read them appropriately, they tend to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And so these guys are very comfortable, they're very arrogant, they're full of pride, they've missed Jesus in all of this. And by the way, if, if people, when you present the gospel to them, are just kind of apathetic, it's a sign that they probably really don't understand the gospel, because actually there's only two responses to the gospel. If you understand the outrageous claims that Jesus made, it's either revival or riot. It's either uh, you're going to greatly oppose him or you're going to bow down on your knees before him and give your life to him. You can't be apathetic unless you just don't understand what the gospel's saying. And so as he's pre presenting the gospel here, he says, basically, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I mean, they persecuted all the prophets, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. 
That's kind of what they were doing. It's kind of they're pretty graphic. I mean, Luke goes into a lot of detail here. But this, this is so cool. I mean, this is amazing, the next two verses. I've been meditating on those verses, and they, are, they will rock your world if you understand that, and the implications of this sink deep into your heart this morning. If you can understand what is available to all of us, somehow in the midst of this, he's going to have rocks thrown at him, and in the midst of this, this is what he says. This is what the Bible says. But he, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Oh my goodness. Listen, you get one glimpse of the glory of God, you're ruined for anything else. For anything else in life. Nothing compares to the glory of God, the beauty of Jesus. Nothing. And that's what happens here. I mean, so he's got this eternal perspective, gazes, he saw the glory of God. And then check this out. Jesus, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's pretty significant because all the other places in the Bible talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. But right here, Jesus is standing. That's amazing. And then he said, I mean, there's this exclamation, this, this proclamation. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened. I'm telling you, if you could see the heavens of it, if you see the unbelievable acceptance of the creator of the universe directed towards you, his love for you this morning, that's what he's saying. The heavens are open. God loves me with an everlasting love. And then he says this, he repeats this, which is significant, obviously. And Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. We'll talk about what that means. And, and he says, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who's Saul? Saul? Paul, yeah. Oh, this is awesome. I mean, this is amazing. Here, this guy's looking on. And this guy's going to wreak havoc in the early church. Here in the next, the next chapter. But this, this has to have haunted uh, Saul, who later becomes Paul, who writes two-thirds of the New Testament. I mean, this has to have ro- rocked his world to watch what this guy was experiencing while they're hitting him with rocks. And so as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them, just like our Savior did. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's interesting how the Bible uses death as fell asleep. We as believers, when we die, we fall asleep. We wake up, we're with the Lord. We take our last breath here, first breath with him. And the Bible just kind of uses this, this picture of just falling asleep. And so this is God's holy word to us this morning. So three questions we're looking at. What is it? What is the priesthood of the believer? Why is it true? Because I believe he goes on to kind of prove it through his history lesson. And then what difference does it make in our lives? So the first thing, what is it? Old Testament sacrificial system. We kind of need to look at that a bit. And the law, temple, priest. The temple is where you would meet with God. And the law, you must keep it perfectly to interact with God. By the way, you need to know this, that when the law was given, the law was given after God had established his covenant relationship with his people. If you study Exodus chapter 20, which is the law, the Ten Commandments, that chapter is preceded by chapter 19. Of course, okay. Uh, And uh, that wasn't meant to be a joke. I just... Anyway, it became one, didn't it? But... uh, but it's preceded by chapter 19. Chapter 19 is covenant love. So this is what it is. And this is how it always works. I love you. Do you have any idea how much I love you? That's the eternal God speaking to us. Do you know in your, in your wildest dreams, your craziest dreams, how much I love you? Oh, and if you begin to understand this love, this is how you're going to behave in response to me. Here's the Ten Commandments. That's how it works. But, of course, we, we can't live by the Ten Commandments. And, and this was before the Holy Spirit was, was poured out and given to us. And so it was all these things. And so they needed priests 
who were the mediators representing man to God and God to man, and they were able to give sacrifices. And, and so what the Bible tells us is that the Old Testament, sometimes we get really confused about the Old Testament, New Testament, but the Old Testament was meant to be a picture of New Testament principles. It was meant to be a type. The Old Testament was meant to be a type of New Testament truths. Here's your fill in the blank. It was meant to be a shadow of Jesus. It's meant to be a shadow of Jesus. Now, you don't worship a person's shadow. If I walked up to you, first of all, you wouldn't worship me. I hope you wouldn't. And, uh, but uh, you wouldn't talk to my shadow, you know, stand there and talk to my shadow and make, oh, look at you. Oh, man, you look really great today. And uh, that would be really weird, wouldn't it? And that's really what these folks were doing. They were focused on the shadow. And what he was saying, no, it's supposed to point to, to Jesus. You guys have missed Jesus. You've become religious and... And, and in fact, these are verses you can study on your own in the growing notes. Colossians 2.17 talks about that the Old Testament is a shadow pointing to Jesus. Hebrews 10.1, Old Testament, shadow pointing to Jesus. Uh, even Jesus said it in John 5.39-40. He said, he said to the Pharisees, you guys study the Scriptures diligently because you think that they lead you to life. But they lead you to me, and I'm the source of life. And you've refused to come to me. He also said in Luke uh, 24, 27, it's really interesting. You remember the, the story of the two Emmaus-bound uh, disciples and Jesus shows up? And you know what Jesus does during that time? He teaches them about how all the way from Moses and the prophets and the whole Old Testament were really all about him. In fact, uh, 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures that the things concerning himself, they were pointing to him. So if you ever read the Old Testament, you need to always think, Jesus, how is this showing me more of Jesus? How is this pointing me to Jesus? How is this taking me, taking me more to Jesus? Here's your next point in your notes. Jesus, our high priest, is the fulfillment of the temple and the law. You'll notice that in Acts 7.52, what we read, uh, Stephen refers to him as the righteous one, before the coming of the righteous one. Really significant title for Jesus. And the righteous one, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, what it means. Uh, but he is, he's our righteousness. He was our righteousness. And he imputes, he gives us uh, his righteousness and took our sin. That's what that means. But are you guys aware of the significant events that took place when Jesus died on the cross? What happened in the temple when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was torn. Are you guys familiar with that? The veil was torn from where? From, from top to bottom or bottom to top? What was the significance of the veil being uh, torn from the top to the bottom? Now, some of you aren't familiar with this. In the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the high priest would go into this Holy of Holies. And it was the place where the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God was. And they would tie a rope around his uh, foot because if for some reason he didn't go through the ceremonial washings and all the different things that were required, he was unholy. God's presence would strike him dead and then they'd have to pull him out. Nobody dare go in there. Nobody dare go into the very presence of God. And so when Jesus died on the cross, think about the, the implications of this. That curtain was torn from top to bottom, in essence saying, all are invited into the very presence of God. All of you are priests. And you can come and know God. It's pretty significant. Pretty powerful. And uh, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one says the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Hebrews four fourteen through sixteen tells us that Jesus is our high priest. First Timothy two five, it says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, we don't need human mediators. I know that some of you that come from a Roman Catholic uh, background. Uh, that you have priests who are your, is kind of the mediator. And the Bible says you don't need mediator. You've got Jesus. He's your high priest. You can go right to Jesus. And it's through Jesus you can know the Father. And so, uh, and that's pretty significant. There is, in fact, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't need any other mediators. And then Hebrews 10, 12 and 26, it says that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and there's no more sacrifice needed. 
So he was the ultimate sacrifice, so there's no more needed. Now, here's what's interesting about this. By the way, this understanding of the priesthood of the believer was really significant for me a number of years ago because I got involved, both my, 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 my wife and I got involved in a church that would be classified as being cultic. And the pastor came across as if he was a... Uh, he was part of a secret, society, a secret society of intimate friends with Jesus and that we needed to go through him to hear God. In fact, if anybody was going to leave the church, you had to go and report to the pastor and get his permission. And if he didn't hear from God that you were to leave, then you couldn't leave even whether you thought you should leave or not. And so, I mean, he, he would control people's lives like this. And so I, I confronted him because I understood the priesthood of the believer. I said, I don't need a mediator. <laughs> And he didn't like that. And I said, I know that you're the authority of this church, but I think you've stepped over boundaries. And our job is to ultimately help people and disciple them so that they begin to go to Jesus. And and that he's their mediator between God. And they can go into the Holy of Holies. And yeah, we can kind of help people and direct people, but they're the ones that ultimately need to make those decisions. And it didn't go over very well, obviously, with this guy. He really uh, uh, just really tried to turn the whole church against us in that. And that's part of cultic kind of practices too. It was very subtle because we didn't see that until we got involved in it. And about a year later, we began to realize, man, this guy's a control freak. Ooh, and he takes scripture and really twists it really badly. And there's just all kinds of unhealthy things. But it was, And there's still people that get caught up in that. But when you understand the priesthood of the believer, you can learn to think for yourself. And you learn that you can hear from God on your own. You don't, you're not susceptible to cultic groups like that. Because you can learn to hear God. And if anything, leaders should confirm what God is already speaking to you. And kind of help you and direct you so that you can hear God more clearly. So it was, I mean, it was really helpful uh, for us a number of years ago. I thank God for my upbringing and my, uh, my Pentecostal background. I mean, we just, we all thought, man, we can all know God. We can all hear from God. We can all walk with God. And that was so cool because it kind of gave me a sense of confidence and strength. And I knew that I wasn't not in error because I understood the scripture. And I'd sought counsel too as I was kind of working through that. I certainly didn't want to rebel against the authority, but this authority was out of line. And so my, uh, my rebellion, if you want to call it that, that's what he called it, uh, was actually justified. So anyway, uh, here's the interesting thing about Jesus, our high priest. I mean, he's the fulfillment of the temple and the law. Christianity has the highest and lowest standards of any religion. Did you know that? Christianity has the highest and the lowest standards of any religion. God expects perfection. But Jesus, our righteous one, fulfilled it for us. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I, don't, I, I, I can't. I don't have to. He did it for me. See, that's what's so amazing about it. Our complete acquittal was at unparalleled cost... On the cross, through his death, burial, resurrection, Jesus Christ absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love you absolutely unconditionally. I don't care what kind of week you just had. I mean, I do, but I don't if you think that you sinned beyond God's ability to reach you. (laughs) It can't happen. It can't happen. You can never sin beyond God's reach and His love. He loves you unconditionally because all the conditions of the law were met through Jesus on the cross. And so what we do is we just we learn to admit the fact that we do fall short and that we, we just run to the cross. We run to Him. We, when, we, when we sin, we just recognize how much more we need Him. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation pushes you away from God. That has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with the enemy. But conviction, just when you fall down, you realize, oh my goodness, you do love me. And you run to him. Because all the conditions of the law were met in Jesus. So you can never, listen, think about that. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you could ever do to keep him from loving you. There's no sin too great for that. If you've put your faith in Jesus... That's a a significant thought. So why are you going around with guilt and shame? Why would you be overwhelmed with condemnation? Well, you don't believe that truth. You don't understand that truth. I don't care what you've done. He died on the cross for your sins. He said it is finished, and that means it is paid in full. That is an amazing concept. Oh, my Lord, help us to live in the reality of it. Here's the next point. Through Jesus... 
So here's the significance of it. Through Jesus, we are a chosen priesthood who have access to the very throne room of God and are to offer a living sacrifice of our lives, word and deed, proclaiming His excellencies. Let me read a little bit of where I got this idea. I mean, it's obviously biblical and scriptural, this idea of priesthood, but it's, uh, it's actually found, uh, part of this idea is found in 1 Peter. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it here. In fact, I think it will be up here on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll start in verse 5. There is no screen. Uh, that's all right. He might not have it on there. Does he not have it on there? Okay, that's fine. Um, let, me, uh, let me read it. Just you listen really carefully. This is what he says. And just jot this down, read it later. He says, you yourselves like living stones. So he's talking to us as Christians. Living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So we are like living stones, like a spiritual house. So he's bringing us together. It's called, it's another picture of the body of Christ. Are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So he actually is calling us to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So it's talking about Jesus. So the, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Jesus is the cornerstone. We're part of the building that's being placed into this building that becomes a dwelling place for God. But there are those that would stumble over this. So he's kind of using this uh, kind of metaphorical language. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, here's the significant verses here. These are really great. He says, but you are a chosen race. If you've put your faith in Jesus, in essence, you didn't choose him. He chose you. There's no way you could put your faith in him unless he chose you, and it's because he's drawing your heart to him. That's pretty significant. You are a chosen race. And then he says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies. I love that, the excellencies of him. Don't we typically do that? We proclaim the excellencies of a great restaurant. Oh, man, you've got to go check out this restaurant. Or a great vacation. We proclaim the excellencies. Well, this is what he's saying. You're going to be able to live your life in such a way, having encountered him and being a part of this this so-called temple. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this temple where his presence dwells, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people chosen by God, that you're going to proclaim his excellencies. You're going to not be able to keep quiet about him. That's what he's saying. Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, I mean, that's, that's a powerful, uh, some powerful verses, really great verses. So here's our problem. In fact, here's our problem below all of our problems. If you were to sit down with me and you begin to share your problems with me, I'd say, well, that's not really the root of your problems. Here's the root of your problems. The problem below all of my problems, uh, that is... You know, our inordinate anxiety, anger, depression comes from not believing that through the cross of Christ, I have all the favor of God I will ever, ever, ever need. See, the problem below my problems, yeah, I have these problems. I'm stressed out over finances. You know, I've got a relationship over here that's not working right. Well, the reason why you have the anxiety, anger, depression, all the emotion to that is because you really don't believe And I would encourage you to continue to put your faith in Him and and to just be enveloped by God's Word because you're not believing that through the cross of Christ I have all the favor of God I will ever need. Because if you really understood that you have all the favor of God you'll ever need, you could manage, you could navigate any of those difficulties. But it's because you you really don't believe it like you could or should. And He's inviting you to, to do that. Um... We are all a little bit like outsiders, aren't we? And we feel like outsiders, but Jesus has made us insiders, giving us acceptance we have been looking for our whole life. When you discover who Jesus is, there's just a lot of things in this life that kind of, uh, they dim in comparison. Oh, well, you got rejected by somebody at your work. Jesus died for me. Oh, well, my, my resources aren't going like I really wanted to. He's my provider. See, can, can you see how that works? He's kind of the trump card in your life that you throw down. 
there's an interview here I'm going to show. It's uh, Tom Brady. I want you to listen to what he has to say. How many are familiar with who Tom Brady is? Okay. I, I don't really know who he is, but watch this. I'm kidding. I know who he is. Watch this. Brady has already become a bigger star than Carl Yastrzemski, Larry Bird, or Bill Russell. You go out with Tom, and you just kind of feel sorry for him in a way, kind of, because he's just getting bugged all the time. You know, we, we float through there. They just see a big, overweight white guy. <laughs> hey, that's pretty normal out here. <laughs> you know, but, you know, there's Tom Brady. I mean, everybody wants, to, everybody wants to be around Tom. Can you go out to restaurants? If I have the energy to deal with, you know, put an happy face on. Sometimes I don't feel like that. Uh, you seem a bit the reluctant star. Well, the problem is it's you can't have one without the other. You can't have the football fame and not the other stuff. So in a lot of ways, I've created this myself. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. <laughs> You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. The most eligible bachelor in America. Well, it's very flattering. Um, but at the same time, I don't think I sleep any better at night being that. No way. Do you mean like alone or not alone? <laughs> what did you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You were startled by a jack-in-the-box. His all-American image took a hit last year when actress Bridget Moynihan, his longtime girlfriend, announced that she was pregnant with Brady's son shortly after the couple broke up. He is now supporting the child and is dating supermodel Giselle Bündchen. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. It's less money than Peyton Manning and even some journeyman quarterbacks are making, but Brady wanted to leave some money on the table for the Patriots to hire free agents to help them win another Super Bowl. I used to get $600 dorm checks. And, and go eat Subway and use pizza cards to get my way through college and eat baked potatoes and make pancakes every night. So I don't think that's ever been a big thing for me. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. He's turned down multi-million dollar endorsement deals because he didn't think they were right for him. And many of the ones he's taken, he's shared with his teammates. Uh, you guys have to go everywhere with me. <laughs> But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Three Super Bowl rings. Millions. What is he missing? Right here. All that means nothing. That can never, ever fill the empty, eternal void within us. Only that can. Only the Lord Jesus Christ our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in Him. Pretty amazing. That's a St. Augustine quote. He struggled with all kinds of issues. And uh, desperate for acceptance, we, we dress up, we pretend, we wear masks, we seek uh, you know, accomplishments, achievements, all sorts of acquisitions. And yet, through Christ, heaven's door is opened wide to see God's smiling face of acceptance. And as a result of that, our lives become about declaring His excellencies. And, and what this does, when you begin to see this more clearly, when you begin to see the cross and what Jesus has done for you on the cross, and the more you do that, this eliminates defensiveness, Pettiness, cynicism, it does. In light of his excellencies, there is no trial too big and there's no temptation too attractive. So if I succumb to trial, if I, if I succumb to, to temptation, it's because I'm not living in the reality of what Jesus has provided for me on the cross. So let's talk about why is this true. 
And we'll knock this out uh, pretty quickly because this is, I'm just going to summarize. You can read it later. I mean, he does a, Stephen does an Old Testament history lesson here. And, and really, I mean, that's what one night wasn't what the, they were asking him. They were saying, so are these, uh, are these accusations true? Are these things so? Chapter 7, verse 1. And so he goes on to explain what he was trying to get across, and they took and they twisted. And here's the first point under why is it true? God is not in a box, temple. He is on the move. Now, real quick, let me ask you this question. How do people get saved in the Old Testament as compared to the New Testament? I am often asked this question. You need to know this. How did people in the Old Testament get saved? Do they get saved just like we get saved? Actually, they do, and it's based on, on Romans. Write this down, Romans, Romans 4, Hebrews 11. It's by faith, the same way we do, by grace through faith in Jesus. But they looked ahead, we look back. Now, they didn't have all the blessings in this new covenant. By the way, the covenant of grace... The covenant of works was with Adam and Eve. They blew that. And then from that point forward, it's all about covenant of grace. And it's spelled out differently under the Mosaic covenant of grace. And then you've got the uh, Abraham and the Davidic. And you've got these different covenants. And they're all a little bit different. But it's all by God's grace. And then we come into the new covenant. Now that we look back on the cross, which is just absolutely wonderful. So it's kind of important to remember that. So he goes through and gives a history lesson here. Verses 2 through 8, he says that God visited Abraham in a pagan land. So here's the point that he's making, that you, you, you just don't have to go to a temple and do the laws and have priests to encounter God because all of these folks encountered God outside of those, those forms. And those forms were only meant to point to God. And then verses 9, 9 through 19, God was with Joseph even after sold as a slave into a pagan land. And then verses 20 through 43, I'm, we're highlighting chapter 7 of Acts. Um, God comes to Moses in the wilderness. Verses 44 through 50, God is not confined in any house. History, uh, he gives the history of the tabernacle to the temple from Moses to David to Solomon. And in fact, he even quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And he says, heaven is my throne. This is God speaking to us. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? You think that just a, a, a temple can contain me? There's no way. So, so he quotes that. It's pretty amazing. Here's the next point. He gets to, we see this in the next set of verses, verses 51 through 53. He says, you have hard hearts and consistently break the law. And that's true about all of us. The Bible makes that very clear. You have hard hearts and consistently break the law. Um. Do you guys ever go through this that you just feel like, where are you, God? Anybody ever feel like, like God is a distant, detached deity somewhere? Anybody? It's just me. Um, here's what I'm coming to the conclusion of. and it, you know, Sometimes it takes me a little while. Nancy and I went up into the mountains of, of Flagstaff uh, this last week, right after the weekend service went up. And, uh, and the Lord really spoke to me very clearly while we were up there. And not that he couldn't speak to me down here, okay? Uh, but sometimes my, my heart is hard, and I consistently, you know, break his law. And so, but our, I, this is what I put. I tweeted this this last week, and I had someone respond to me. And they said, yeah, that, this happened to me. Are looking for God. No, this is what I put down. I put this. It's not him. When he feels like a distant, detached deity, it's not him. It's our depravity in the very God-ignoring air we breathe culturally. Our looking for God is like looking frantically for our car keys only to have them in our pocket the whole time. Anybody relate to that? How many have ever done this? Where are my glasses? <laughs> They're on your head. Yeah. The Bible says, Acts seventeen twenty nine, In Him we live we move, we have our being. He is here. He is all around us. He is ever-present. What I have to often do is not only shut the noise out that's outside of me, but I have a whole lot of noise on the inside of me that I have to shut out and learn this discipline of solitude. It says, 
In Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. 46.10. It also says, it says this, step out of the traffic. I like the message, step out of the traffic or step out of the heat and take a long loving look at me, your high God. So I would encourage you to do that. Do that. And I, it takes me a little bit of work when I do that so that I can really begin to hear God more clearly. And this is what's happening in their lives. So in verses 51 through 53, Israel has failed to keep the law, and so have we. We do, too. We struggle with that. But here's the next point. Only Jesus, the righteous one, that's your fill in the blank. Only Jesus, the righteous one, verse 52, through the cross can give us changed hearts. All the keeping of the law, all the priest, all the temple, that, if that doesn't point us to Jesus, if we get caught in that, we're kind of worshiping the shadow, and that can't change our heart. Only Jesus can change our heart. It's only the gospel that can change our heart. Now, keep in mind, Stephen is speaking to religious people who have turned the law, the temple, the priest into a shadow, into the end, rather than the means to the end, Jesus. And those things can't change your heart, only Christ can. So what does it mean, righteous one? Let me walk you through this, this idea real quickly. This idea of righteous one. It says, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He took all of my sin, past, present, and future, and he gave me his righteousness. And then in that same chapter, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, verse 17, it says, Those that are in Christ have become a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You have a new potential. You have a new privilege. You have a new power that God has given you as he indwells you with his Holy Spirit. So that's, that's a little bit of what that righteous, uh, righteous one means. You have a new potential and privilege and power in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16, it tells us that corporately we are the temple of God. So when we gather together, there's a dynamic of God's presence that you can't experience on your own. Even if you do go to the mountains in Flagstaff, where it's 60 degrees and rainy and really nice, as it was this last weekend. And, uh, but it also says in, second, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, individually we are the temple of God. So me, myself, is the temple of God. God dwells within me. And then the natural result of this is Romans 12, 1 through 2. That when I begin to understand the reality of His presence being so close and I learn to practice His presence and live in the reality of His presence, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. I mean, your life, you just want to live your life for Him. You want to, you want to declare His excellencies and proclaim His excellencies. Listen to what John Newton said. This is a quote, the hymn writer of The Amazing Grace. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen His beauty are joined to part no more. You hear what he's saying? Before Christ, my options were turn from God and pursue the desires of my heart or suppress those desires and do my moral duty, obey God. But since I have seen his beauty, the sacrificial cost, the, the sacrificial costly love of Jesus on the cross, my duty to Christ and my deepest pleasure are one in the same. Um, did you guys say that sin is a lot of fun? Yeah, boy. It is, actually. But the Bible says in Hebrews 11, it's for a season. The pleasures of sin for a season. There is nothing on this planet Earth that compares to the pleasure that can be found in living for God's glory. You guys understand that? Have, do you see that? Have you experienced that? That's what he's saying. Let me read this quote again from John Newton. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. My duty is my pleasure, and my duty is to follow him and to obey him. But that's where I find my deepest pleasure, because God is most glorified in us. We're most satisfied in him. My life is to be about his glory, and that's where I find my deepest satisfaction. That's what Stephen is experiencing. See, and that's what a living sacrifice is. It's like, man, your wish is my command. See, here's the deal. The love, the joy, the peace, the pleasure we have been seeking in people, things, and circumstances of life are found in Him. They're found in Him. See, I love... You guys know I love coffee. I love coffee. Yeah, baby. 
This is a gift from God, but it's more than that. It's a pointer to God. Now, I can exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things. Ooh, bow down to this. I don't want to do that, but I can worship God through this. I can worship God through last night, my wife and I. Hey, have you noticed it's getting a little cooler out? It went from 115 to 103. We barbecued last night. Oh, it was a great evening. It was a great evening. We did a little barbecue, hamburgers, you know, chicken, and, you know, the, uh, we had the corn on the cob on the grill, and, and it actually felt pretty decent outside. And uh, we had a good time, and we worshiped God through that experience because I recognized that my wife, my kids, everything about me is a gift from God, but it's ultimately a pointer to Him. And you can use those as opportunities to worship God, to take you to the God. What kind of God would give me these kind of things that I could enjoy life and, and have that kind of a worship experience? But think about this. Let's, let's kind of step out of that. If the God of the universe loves us enough to give his life for us, what are you afraid of? If the God of the universe gave his life for us, he loved us so much, do you have any idea how much he loves you? If he loves you that much, what are you afraid of? To the degree that you understand that is to the degree that you begin to experience. And that's what was happening in in Stephen. What Stephen knew in his head came alive in his heart. That in Christ, we are beautiful in God's sight and free of condemnation. And the heavens are open to us. So what difference does it make? Three things. Here they are. Courage, compassion, and celebration. Let's go over each of these very quickly. Courage. Did you see the courage in Stephen's life? I mean, he had a powerful prayer life, verse 8 of chapter 6, and he's praying for everybody. There's things that are happening. Let me tell you something. When you've been in the throne room of God, when you've experienced God, you're going to go out and declare His excellency. You're going to be praying for people because you're going to want them to know and encounter Christ and know His grace. But he even went beyond that. Stephen was, what did he do? He boldly is proclaiming God's Word because he is saturated with God's Word. We see this in chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. That's what he's doing as he gives us the Old Testament history lesson. Tells us in Second Peter one seven, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and of a sound mind. Here's the next one. So you'll have courage. You also have compassion. Chapter six, verse eight, it says that he was full of grace. So Stephen is serving and feeding the poor. When you encounter God, one of the ways you declare His excellency is that you begin to help others in need. You serve others, but also we see this compassion is that it says in verse 10, chapter 6, that they couldn't withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The word spirit literally means his joy and loving sensitivity. And then in the 60th verse of chapter 7, what do we see? He says this. He shows his compassion through forgiveness. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How many of you ever had a hard time forgiving others, forgiving someone that has offended you? To the degree, and listen to me, there's something about what Stephen is doing while they're murdering him. He's forgiving them. How in the world did he do that? Because he understood the forgiveness that God had offered him. He understood that he was completely forgiven in God. He knew the weight of his own sin. So therefore, he was able to allow that overflow his life so that he could give that to others. That's why it tells us in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then there was this incredible celebration. And we see this in these verses. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, I need to tell you a little bit about what that standing is. Every other place in the Bible, it's talking about him sitting. But the commentators that I read is that the Bible speaks of his intercessory work as, on, as an ongoing work. So it says intercessory work based on Hebrews 7.25 and 1 John 2.1. Ongoing in which he stands before the Father as our representative so that we are regarded by God in him. So I get this idea that here he sees Jesus. It's almost like Jesus is saying, come on, I'm bringing you home, man. I'm bringing you home. I'm applauding your, re- your coming to me. As he sees Jesus standing at the right hand Of the Father. I like what Robert Murray McShane says if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Amazing. Quick story we're going to take communion. There'll be three places here. 
If you're not a believer, you can just bypass this time. But I would encourage you to, to put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Uh, that's uh, the simplicity of the gospel in that what he did for you, believe that he died on the cross for all of your sins and uh, receive him as your Lord and Savior this morning and feel free to take communion. The communion, what we take here, is really represents the cross. The bread, you'll take the bread, you'll dip it in the cup and um, it represents his broken body and his shed blood for us this morning. And uh, just really quickly, uh, our sweet... Uh, Kathy Hebe went to be with the Lord uh, yesterday at 8.30 in the morning. And my wife and I had opportunity to meet with her and Timothy, her husband, um, this last week before she was put in hospice. And I, and I got to just tell you this, is that as we were sitting there, and we were talking to her a little bit about what we had been studying in the book of Acts. And we talked about back in chapter, I think it was chapter 5, where these guys got beat Remember, they got the flogging and they went out and they, they, they considered, they rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And, and I talked about the glory of God. And as I was sitting there, her and his eyes lit up and she said, oh, oh, that's always what I've wanted to live for. It's always his glory. I love his glory. I love knowing him and making him known. And of course, I was able to say easily, yes, Kathy, you have always <laughs> Anybody that knew Kathy, she couldn't keep quiet about Jesus. And now she is celebrating for all eternity. Kathy has never been more alive than what she is right now with the Lord Jesus Christ. A quote that I put on the, the, the tweet, the Twitter that I sent out yesterday. It was on my uh, Facebook. And it goes like this. And I really believe that. And I believe this is what's happening to Stephen. And I, and I believe this is the hope that we have. It's Charles Spurgeon. He says, death is no punishment to the believer. It is the gate of endless joy. It is the gate of endless joy. And so I saw in Kathy this glory. And this is what her husband said this last week, that while she was in there, they weren't playing any music, but Kathy kept saying, I can hear, I can hear the song, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. God was preparing her to come home. I believe that's what's happening to Stephen. And so as we take communion this morning, may what we believe in our head come alive to our heart. That God is for us and not against us. He loves us. And I'm telling you, when you have that kind of an encounter with God, that the heavens are open wide. And Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. When you understand that, you're going to have courage and compassion and celebration until he takes you home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. And as we take communion, as we end our time together, and as people take communion and as they exit quietly here, Lord, meet with us. Meet with us this morning. May what we believe in our head come alive in our heart. May we see you more clearly in all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.